is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, we have more questions than answers now that Karen Bass and Rick Caruso have debated for the first time. They tried to skirt around some questions about conflicts of interest and a potential scandal. We'll go in-depth into whether we all really learn more about what each candidate stands for and if either one stood out. The L.A. school district plans to do something about a recent rash of teenage drug overdoses. We'll look into whether schools can actually help. And Russia and Iran have hardline governments, but current protests show those governments might not be as powerful as they would like to project. Former President Trump says the president can declassify documents just by saying or thinking about it. We'll clear that one up. STDs are on the rise nationally. We'll try and find out what's going on. And friendships can unite us in troubled political times. We talked to a scholar and author about his new book about famous interracial friendships that can help to heal us today. Wouldn't it be great to be able to do things just by thinking about mm-hmm. it? Yes. It's like, I, I, I want that piece of paper. I will just think about it. And it will come to me. Well, what did somebody tweet? Oh, well, if Trump just thought to declassify, maybe Joe Biden has since thought that they're actually classified again. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're right back to where we were. (laughs) A clash of thoughts. We start, though, with uh, L.A.'s mayor debate. With us is uh, Hernan Molina, political analyst for Australia uh, TV here in L.A. He hosts Dos Tipos Politicos, a weekly Spanish-language podcast about current political affairs. Thanks for being with us. Uh, it's the typical question that is typically asked after every typical debate. Who do you think won? I think they were very good, both of them. And for Caruso to be a rather newcomer, to although he obviously clearly tried to be, uh, present himself as the outsider against the incumbent or sort of insider, uh, Bar- Karim Bass, I, I thought Caruso did pretty well, didn't lose his cool, remained uh, relatable for someone who, being a billionaire, has had a hard time uh, making an impact on the working uh, middle class and the uh, largely democratic voters uh, of Los Angeles. I think Caruso did pretty well. Karen Bass also stood her ground and showed that she has sensible proposals, and I think we can talk about uh, specific proposals and how viable they are, obviously, for uh, from both candidates. Who got points in on each other and and where like where do they have room to 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 take their their points and and say okay let's build on this and then where are they going to need some work at the end of the day because they know that that person is coming for them at our debate in a couple weeks on that issue well i think that karen bass for instance in talking about the homeless issue and the housing uh, affordability crisis in los angeles had uh, specific numbers and it shows that having been a legislator she understands how Things are, I think, where she did not very well do very well explaining, for instance, the California Environmental Quality Act and the impact on regulations here in Los Angeles and in, in every city in, in the state, uh, and saying that she would take a look at those uh, and how she can modify regulations. She can only modify how the business processes in Los Angeles uh, as a city happen, but she cannot change how the state law is applied when it comes to the California Environmental Quality Act. I think that. Caruso, um, Caruso's problem all along was about talking about numbers and talking about um, changing things dramatically, which when you think about what Schwarzenegger did as an outsider and, and Trump as, as an outsider capitalizing in the anger and frustration of people. And obviously here in Los Angeles, there is a lot of people who are very frustrated about how the homelessness issue has, uh, it seems to be out of control. Uh, I think where Caruso fails is where 
uh, there is no specificity or even viability uh, saying that he is going to have 30,000 beds for shelter. Trust me, if LASA, the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, which is a joint organization by the county and the city of Los Angeles, uh, could have done that, they could, could have done that. And the point is that it's not an, an easy issue to, to fix. Clearly, new leadership could uh, push this issue uh, further. But uh, talking about 30,000 uh, beds and, and shelters is not going to happen with Caruso or Bas, it's going to take a long time to mitigate this problem, and we pr- will probably never fix it. Let me ask you this, because the both, as you know, both Bass and Caruso are running as Democrats, although Bass was was uh, trying uh, to, to paint Caruso as, in effect, a, a fake Democrat. And Latinos in the city have traditionally, as you also know, <clears throat> been aligned with Democrats. Uh, are Latinos in this city buying Rick Caruso as a Democrat, or do they think he's a Republican in Democrat clothing? I don't know that people are really thinking necessarily about whether Caruso is a Democrat or a Republican. I think people, what are trying to figure out is whether the problems that they live every day with, like having an incumbent near their home, is going to be addressed and fixed. And this is where the problem, or I think Karen Bass has a problem, which is she is part of the Democratic uh, Party, which has governed the city, and the majority of the city council is also Democrats. And they may say, well, Caruso is proposing all these things. We don't know him very well. And in the same vein that people have voted for outsiders before, they may give him a chance. I think that's where the biggest problem is. It's not so much where Caruso is um, uh, a former Republican and now an opportunist Democrat, I would call him, but more about the quality of life. The other thing I, I think that it may play negatively for Caruso is when it comes to women's rights, because while Latinos uh, tend to uh, view abortion in a very conservative way, they also don't want women to be uh, taking their rights away. And while Caruso says that he's pro-life and pro-choice, he has been aligned with the Democratic Party, with, I'm sorry, with the Republican Party, that was, was not that exactly, it was the opposite. Hernan Molina there, political analyst, Australia TV here in L.A. Hernan, thanks. And, of course, uh, the next debate is ours. Is ours, and it's going to be October on October 6th. 6th at 5 o'clock. And uh, you can listen to it live here in KNX, streaming it, uh, taking questions, too, uh, possibly, if you want to. Uh, what's our address again, if people want to write in or give a voice Yeah, voice debate question? at com. Write in your questions or send us a voice note, and then uh, we might use it on the air. Right now, though, the recent overdose death of a 15-year-old girl in Hollywood has the L.A. school district announcing plans to fight the problem of drug overdoses. Now, this comes after seven teenagers in L.A. have overdosed on pills likely laced with fentanyl over the past month. The plan will include details on resources students will get to help limit overdoses in schools. Nicholas Matthews is founder and CEO of Stillwater Behavioral Health in Porter Ranch in Montecito, he was, by the way, addicted to alcohol and heroin when he was a teenager. Nicholas, thanks for being with us. Um, tell us what your first thoughts, maybe even your second and third thoughts are on this plan to deal with students overdosing. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I, my, my first initial, I think, reaction is I'm, I'm so glad that this is getting attention. You know, this is something that's been affecting youth for for 
you know, a very long time, myself included. Um, you know, I think my second thought is it's really a shame that we had to see seven overdoses uh, recently right in our right in our hometown, um, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, as the catalyst to to get everybody's attention. But I suppose it takes what it takes. So kids have always bought drugs. So that's our baseline, right? In today's environment, how do you get the message across that what you're buying is not, and oftentimes, what you think you're buying? And this is how people are ending up dying. I mean, it's been spliced with, with fentanyl, and that will kill you. So you're playing basically Russian roulette out there when you, when you buy something off a guy at a park. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that's what makes this so scary is that it's just uh, it's it's a different animal than it used to be. Um, you know, I think for the longest time, it was very easy to sort of turn the other cheek and just hope for the best hope that these kids would come to their senses as they grew up and they wouldn't have to experience very severe consequences. But that's not the case anymore. Um, you know, I think from from my perspective, um, sort of on the front lines of dealing with addicts in early recovery or addicts trying to make that transition into recovery what we see is, you know, reducing harm is our, our greatest tool. And what I mean by that is, you know, providing fentanyl test strips um, and providing, you know, Narcan to save people when they do overdose. I, I recognize that that might be a controversial opinion because you're talking about, in effect, facilitating the abuse of these substances. You're, you're telling people, hey, it's okay to do it. But the alternative is prohibition. And it's so clear that that is not working because they're just doing it anyway. So while we're working on a longer term solution, which I believe is based in treatment and education, first things first is let's educate people and teach them how to keep themselves and their friends safe um, as they're going through this process or more people will pass away. Tell me what you think is not being done right and needs to be done. Well, that's a that's a, a very good question. Um, you know, I, I think, again, it kind of ties into that prohibition idea that I was just describing. I think we still have a very archaic way of of uh, treating these issues. We're not recognizing that these kids are seeking substances to escape. They're using these pills because they don't feel good in their own skin. They feel uncomfortable. They're, they're seeking something else. And I think the conversation needs to be had of, of how can we preventatively educate people to address trauma and mental health so they don't feel the need to escape? How can we provide a safe arena for these kids to talk to their parents, talk to their friends, talk to their teachers without the fear of getting in trouble so that they can truly heal from this stuff, uh, whatever it may be. I mean, trauma is a very interesting thing that we all carry. How can they address this trauma and we remove the need to medicate? Um, and I think that's always second nature in these conversations. The first thing that comes up is, oh, my God, how do we get rid of these drugs? Who do we blame for it? Because it couldn't possibly be I couldn't levy any blame on my kid or myself as a parent. I need to attack the supplier. But then you find yourself spinning your wheels because you're talking about a foreign drug cartel that there's you have no power as an individual. Your power lies with educating your family, bringing love and compassion right to the doorstep of these individuals that are still suffering and trying to help. Nicholas Matthews, founder and CEO of Stillwater Behavioral Health in Porter Ranch and Montecito. Still to come, STDs like syphilis on the rise across the country. We try to find out why. And we'll talk to a political science professor whose new book explains how famous interracial friendships changed U.S. history and what we can learn from that today.
Right now, protests have erupted in Russia and Iran, both authoritarian countries. People in Russia upset about the partial mobilization of reservists to fight in Ukraine. People in Iran angry over the death of a woman who was in the custody of the morality police. Do these protests show the regimes aren't as strong as they appear? Mikhail Alexiev, San Diego State University political science professor and expert in Eurasian and international studies with us. Thanks for being here. So let's start with Russia. We've made so much, and everybody does, about word not getting around through the Russian media about what's happening a lot of times. But when you've got now over a thousand arrests and then reports that those who they're arresting are being told to go enlist in the army, that has to get around, right? People are noticing that this is happening. Yes. Hello. Yes, it is happening. Uh, However, to put things in perspective, uh, I wouldn't see that as a major uh, splash of protest. Uh, We have seen a lot of other protests in Russia uh, earlier in recent years when a lot more people were arrested and reports uh, of protests uh, indicate that they were in the thousands. I think you would need them uh, to be in the hundreds of thousands to uh, really challenge the system. Uh, also, uh, of course, uh, the uh, fact that a lot of people are leaving uh, Russia is an indicator that people still have a choice of exit rather than uh, protest, and they're using it. Uh, and those numbers. Um, very hard, impossible to estimate right now. But even if they are, say, in the tens of thousands, that still doesn't pose a significant challenge to uh, Putin's regime, because with a a country of 144 million people, um, you know, if you want to recruit 300,000, it's it's still it's still a very doable uh, proposition. But does it let's let's stick to Russia for a minute. Does it not say something that you mentioned that there have been these sort of protests in Russia before, and, and, and that's certainly true. But as you know, one thing that has changed in the past just year or so is since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, it's really clamped down there. Putin has really clamped down. Uh, and so, you know, even five people going out is kind of risky, let alone a few thousand. Yes, uh, but uh, so far, looking at the video footage of these protests, indicates to me that the repressive machine that Putin has built is very effective uh, and well-oiled. The the police uh, seem to outnumber and overpower the protesters, very efficiently uh, ship them into buses, take them away to jail. And as you said, yes, some of them are then given uh, those um, draft notices to uh, go and join uh, the military. So uh, the, uh, however... I think where uh, what we need to watch out for is uh, the next, uh, the coming weeks and months. Uh, will these protests persist? Uh, because uh, there are parts of the Russian repressive uh, machine that were shifted to Ukraine, namely the so-called National Guard, the Rosgvardia units. And so in the sustained protests, if we see the hesitation Uh, on the part of the police and National Guard to repress, then I would say uh, we may be talking about some potential for change. All right. So we'll wait to see if any cracks show there. What about Iran, your view on what's happening? And uh, I mean, these these incredibly brave women who are are going out knowing that they face tear gas and arrests and and maybe worse and burning their headscarves. I think they're very significant protests. Uh, they are um, the reports that in, in northern Iran, uh, there was a government building set on fire, for instance. That's actually going uh, a lot um, deeper and wider, I would say, than the Russian protests. 
And interestingly enough, uh, even though it's not a question of people being drafted uh, and sent to the war front where they may die. So it, to me, it indicates uh, a huge uh, sea change in Iran. There's a generational change. There's a way to protest against the system. But we must be careful also uh, being uh, overtly optimistic about generational change because we have seen in many countries how younger generation that protests later become conservative. And they're fearless now, but once they experience the repression uh, of, of Iran, and the Ayatollahs are basically saying that they're giving orders to shoot uh, at the so-called lawbreakers, once they experience that, would that theory emerge? That's the point. But nevertheless, again, this is something um, that, uh, that uh, we, we would see depending on uh, how uh, the broader society can sustain these protests over the long run. Miguel Alexi of San Diego State. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Former President Trump defending himself as the feds go through the documents they seized in Mar-a-Lago. Mr. Trump telling Fox News' Sean Hannity about declassification. Here's what he said. You had said on Truth Social a number of times you did de declassify. I did declassify, yes. Okay. Is there a process? What was your process to declassify? There doesn't have to be a process, as right. I understand it. You know, there's different people say different right. things. But as I understand, there doesn't have to be. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. Okay, so is he right? Is he partly right? Uh, do we have to think about it? Is declassification really as simple as saying or even thinking it if you're president? Kel McClenahan is executive director of National Security Counselors, a nonprofit law firm that specializes in national security law and information and privacy law. Kel, thanks for being with us. Well, is Mr. Trump right? Can a president of the United States, even by, I don't know, thinking it, presto, declassify something? Well, the president does have the authority to declassify any information at will. It is something that's baked into the Constitution as the courts have interpreted it. The problem comes when you have to prove that something was declassified. And so it is true that a president can say, I declassify this to somebody. But not saying it to, to somebody and merely musing on whether or not it's classified is a different issue. And it becomes a question of proof because if you have the authority, even arguably, to do it in your mind, how would anybody ever prove that it actually happened when whether or not the classification status uh, is accurate comes up in a court of law? Which is why we have usually a process, right? You tell somebody and then they do something and they cross out the stamp and they say declassified on September 21st. It's okay. Someone can read this now. But this, this did not happen here. As far as we know... That is an accurate statement. There is a process that's laid out in Executive Order 13526 that President Obama wrote in 2009. And it's an old process. It's been around since Eisenhower. But the bottom line is, if you are anybody but the president, you do have to go through certain steps in order to declassify something. And if something is declassified by the president, in which wouldn't even be in violation of the order because the order doesn't bind a president, then it still has to be followed. It still has to be acknowledged. When a piece of information is declassified here, it is declassified 
everywhere. If President Trump said the fact that we have a CIA black site in Poland is now declassified, that means that it's declassified when the CIA is talking about it, too, or when the DOD is talking about it. Records aren't classified in one place and declassified in other places. You're either classified or you're not. Is what makes this complicated the fact that there there has been, right, a Supreme Court decision, uh, but there are also all these regulations you just referred to, what uh, uh, President Obama signed into, and regulations that go back to the Eisenhower administration. Is it because there's a clash between those two things? Yes and no. So you have to think of it as where do all of the regulations come from? Where do the executive orders come from? And legally speaking, they are all just manifestations of the president's inherent authority under Article 2 of the Constitution as commander-in-chief of the armed forces. And everything that the president or an agency under the president writes about classification, about clearances, is just an expression of that inherent constitutional authority. Now, when you come to court cases, the court cases are interpreting that constitutional authority. But when it comes to someone like the president, then the rules don't apply because executive orders don't bind the executive. They bind everyone underneath him. Does all this undercut the idea, though, that this was some sort of accident, that these documents were bundled up and put in a box and they just wound up at Mar-a-Lago? Because first it was the picture from the FBI search, and, and they said, well, they, they threw everything on the floor. Well, if, if they threw it on the floor, that means it was there to begin with before they threw it on the floor. And then now, like, I could have declassified these and sent them to where you found them. So it is difficult to reconcile any two of President Trump's arguments on this point, because, as you point out, if it was officially declassified, then it was not planted by the FBI. If it was accidentally packed into a box, then it was not declassified for the purposes of taking to Mar-a-Lago. And so you run into this, what's called arguing in the alternative uh, for for courts. Basically, you're making the argument, I did not break, or sorry, I did not take my neighbor's lawnmower, and it was broken when I took it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite a rabbit hole to go yes. down, isn't it? <laughs> Kel McClanahan, Executive Director of the National Security Counselors. More people are coming down with sexually transmitted diseases now. There was a 26% rise in new syphilis infections reported last year. It's the highest since 1991. The total number of cases hit its highest since 1948. Gonorrhea also up. Number of HIV cases up. Elizabeth Finley, Director of Communications, the National Coalition of STD Directors. Uh, Thanks for being with us. So do we have a why here, or is this a case of, um, okay, numbers have been steadily rising, so now we're reaching new highs? Yeah, there's definitely a why here. We've seen a tremendous reduction in spending in prevention programming. Uh, If you look at the past two decades and adjust it for inflation, it's a 41% reduction in spending. And that means that your local health departments, your local clinics, they can't do outreach to the highest risk people. They can't do education. They can't do testing and they can't do treatment to stop these infections from occurring and spreading in people. And as far as you know, is this a, a just uniquely American problem or is this happening, this increase all over the place? 
This is a pretty unique American American problem. Um, we see uh, that in the U.S., we don't do a great job of investing in public health or healthcare in general. When you look at who's most deeply affected, they're people who don't have access to healthcare. So they don't, they aren't people who are going to the doctor on a regular basis. They aren't getting their well checks or gynecological care. Um, and, and when we look across other healthcare issues, we see that lack of access to healthcare play out in, in other health issues like diabetes or or cardiac issues. Uh, that is a fairly unique American problem. How do we not have and hey, maybe we do have and they just need more funding or more awareness of it or more access, something that you can have like shipped to your door every three months that has, you know, swabs and a finger prick and then you send it in and then they tell you and like you just have that on repeat for people because that doesn't seem super hard to do in 2022. Uh, no, you're right. That kind of innovation is really, really important. And it's something that we've advocated for and that the CDC has talked about and just not put funding behind. We have an incredible program called Let's Get Checked, where people can do just that. We do it in conjunction with local health departments. There are plenty of private companies that do this, although they can be a little bit expensive. Um, these days, you truly can get a kit shipped to your door. There are people who do that on a regular basis. You know, the, the general recommendations are that you get checked for uh, sexually transmitted diseases at your yearly well check um, and then in between uh, partners. Um, and so, so there are plenty of people who will get these kits shipped to their house, do the swabs privately, get a report on their cell phone um, and do that to take care of their health. So with spending, as you pointed out, with spending going down and all of these cases continuously going up, where do you see the future in this? It's pretty bleak. Uh, right now, we're in a precarious situation, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic and what's happened over the last two years. This data that you're reporting on, it comes from the second year of the pandemic, and we saw healthcare really truncated. Lots of these infections are asymptomatic, so they only get caught when you go to the doctor or you think to do a test at home. Um, People are still pretty good about going in when they have symptoms, and that was the case through COVID. So lots of these infections that have been reported out this week, those are the ones that didn't get caught during COVID. So you think they didn't get caught in 2020, they didn't get caught 2021, and now we have this outbreak of monkeypox, um, and that has hit the clinics very, very hard. They've had to switch gears. They've been tremendously heroic in doing that, um, but what it means is that, that they can't see people for the these asymptomatic infections. And if those don't get caught and don't get treated, then they continue to spread. Yeah, I was actually, I wanted to ask you about monkeypox. Where are we with that in your view right now? Because it's kind of fallen off a lot of people's radar and even like the news radar in a lot of cases. Yeah, we're fairly disappointed in the lack of urgency around this. Um, over the summer, everybody was paying attention to it. Uh, now that the numbers have started to decline in big cities, there's less attention to it um, and less urgency in Congress around funding for it. To date, Congress hasn't dedicated any funding whatsoever to treating monkeypox or addressing the outbreak. But if you go outside of places like L.A. or Chicago or New York, the places that peaked really early, if you get into the rural areas, even in California, or you get into like the southern U.S. or the Midwest, those rates aren't declining. They're still going up. 
And as long as this is circulating in our communities, it's going to continue to be a problem. And is it going up, in your view, in those areas? Because why? They they don't have the same uh, amount of help available to them that you do in the big cities? Yeah, they don't have the same amount of help available. In some, in some cases, it's a, a political difference or a difference of will. If you think about a place like L.A. or San Francisco or New York City, um, health departments did a tremendous job to get the word out, to go into clubs and bars and festivals, uh, to, to have these vaccination drives, to really take care of their people. Uh, if you go into a place like Texas, uh, they're not making as concerted an effort to really layer those strategies, to make people aware, to make treatment available, to make vaccines available. And those are the places that are really struggling to bring the numbers down. Elizabeth Finley, Director of Communications, National Coalition of STD Directors. Elizabeth, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Political and social change rarely starts with those sitting in power just together deciding, let's do something just because. There's usually something that pushes it in that direction, right, towards supporting a change. Sometimes it's as simple as developing a friendship with someone who thinks differently. A new book, Stars and Shadows, The Politics of Interracial Friendship from Jefferson to Obama, explores how friendships between influential figures in American history have helped spark change. Now, those lessons could be applied in today's political climate. With us is the book's author, Saladin Ambar. He's a political science professor and scholar at Rutgers University. Thank you for being with us. Let's go back since your 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 book uh, starts with Jefferson, I, I guess, and goes all the way to Obama. Let's go back to Jefferson. What was the relationship, the interracial relationship with Thomas Jefferson that somehow got him to think perhaps differently about anything? Well, first, let me just thank you for having me. A really uh, pleasure to be here on KNX. So uh, grateful for the opportunity to share uh, what I think is a very important story about uh, the possibilities for improving our democracy through friendship. Uh, You know, Thomas Jefferson was nothing if not a scientist, and he was uh, made aware of this free black man in the state of Maryland who was uh, an extraordinary scientist, an ordinary person, but an extraordinary scientist, and his name was Benjamin Banneker. Banneker had produced an almanac of uh, tremendous quality. It had been vetted by one of the leading scientists in the nation in Philadelphia by the man, a man by the name of David Rittenhouse. And uh, this almanac had all of the appropriate astronomical um, uh, forecasts and mathematical measurements and so forth. And Jefferson used uh, that to put uh, Banneker on uh, a commission to survey what would then become the nation's capital of Washington, D.C. Uh, for whatever reason, and we could imagine that Jefferson thought it would be important uh, to have a, a black man as part of the founding of the new capital. Uh, for all of his shortcomings, and they were uh, terribly maddening uh, with respect to race, Jefferson did have these fits and starts and efforts to live up to his own creed of all men created equal. And Banneker was a part of that. And so Banneker would return from that surveying mission in Washington, D.C., laying a boundary stone along with others who were part of that effort. In fact, that boundary stone is still there, actually, in, in uh, I believe it's Falls Church, Virginia. It's in the uh, surrounding area of Washington, D.C., but the original 
uh, boundary line is there and and the rock <laughs> that Banneker placed was there <laughs> uh, and, and encased in an iron wrought fence. It's quite extraordinary to see it uh, even to this day. Nevertheless, uh, Banneker returns and doesn't uh, bask in his glory of having the Secretary of State at the time uh, place him on this commission. He decides that he's going to write Jefferson a letter. And there begins the exchange, because this is no mere thank you letter, hardly. It is a letter excoriating Jefferson for his hypocrisy with respect to race, calls him on the carpet for his hypocrisy with respect to the lines, uh, then and now famous, all men are created equal from the Declaration of Independence that Jefferson penned, and yet for all of that, Jefferson himself was a slaveholder and countenanced the institution of slavery. So all of that was the beginning of a short-lived effort at uh, interracial friendship. And I'm happy to, to delve further because Jefferson includes in his response to Banneker uh, some interesting language that gets Jefferson in trouble because that language implies that he and Banneker are, in fact, social equals. Hmm. And there is the rub. And we have the beginning of a story of uh, a tale of whether or not interracial friendship, the crossing of social boundaries, can be accepted by elites in the United States, or we will have to relegate that to private life. And no man uh, with the power and esteem of Jefferson, no white man with the power and esteem of Jefferson can, uh, can uh, broker such uh, you know, an exchange going forward. You have the other examples, and I think there's there's 10 of them, and, and maybe some are more successful and, and definitely are than, than this Jefferson relationship. But we'll take a break on the other side of this one. But is there also something about being friends with someone where you can tell them things and, and explain things to them that you couldn't from the outside? Sometimes a friend can, can make you hear things or, you know, just say, hey, uh, I'm going to call you out on something because I'm your friend. Well, I think that's the difference between the relationship that Jefferson and Banneker had or tried to have and the one that Abraham Lincoln had with Frederick Douglass. You know, Frederick Douglass meets Lincoln three times and he disagrees with Lincoln vehemently about black soldier pay, which is less than the pay of white soldiers during the Civil War. And of course, Douglass has two of his sons fighting in the Civil War in the 54th Massachusetts, very famous regiment uh, for those who've seen the Denzel Washington film. Uh, Jefferson, I mean, pardon me, uh, Lincoln is taken aback and, and defends himself. He says, you know, you're accusing me of equivocating and changing my mind, and I may be slow to come to, to an opinion, but I don't go back and forth. I don't equivocate. I don't change my mind. And they have it out, if you will. The difference is that Lincoln and Douglas can have these honest exchanges, the back and forth that, frankly, friends will occasionally have from time to time. Douglas leaves that meeting not disappointed in Lincoln. He says, I felt like a man in there. I felt respected that here was someone who didn't take account of my color, but took into account my arguments and who I was as a human being. Very powerful initial meeting, and it's followed up by several other even more extraordinary meetings. And I think that's the difference. I think you, you're spot on. The ability to wrangle with difficult questions and to be uh, told the truth, at least as a friend sees it. But now we're going to skip all the way to the last president named in the title of your book, Barack Obama. Talk about him. Well, Barack Obama did not have, I think it's well known at this point, uh, an immediate liking to Joe Biden. 
you know, Obama is famously, uh, you know, reticent uh, to uh, be emotive uh, publicly and perhaps even privately. That's not his thing. And Joe Biden is quite the opposite. But they bonded over the story of friendship, mostly because of their family backgrounds. Uh, Obama, as we know, had a father who was not present much at all in his life. And Biden was nothing if not a great family man. And Biden earned Obama's respect through his love of family and also through his loyalty. He was a tremendously loyal vice president uh, and not always um, immediately uh, you know, obvious to Obama. Stories would come back to Obama about how Biden stood up for him in various meetings. And this earned Obama's tremendous respect. And slowly but surely, they developed and cultivated a friendship. And I think it's important that it didn't start on such an easy, happy footing. These friendships often don't begin that way. And I think it's important because they often take work. Um, all friendships do, and certainly interracial friendships, perhaps, take a bit more of their share of hard work. So today, with the politics that we have and everyone on Washington and on the Hill really arguing with each other all the time and not letting anybody do anything, um, is anybody doing the work anymore? Well, I think so. I think, you know, uh, what gives me a great deal of hope are the young people I look out at in, in my lecture hall, in my, uh, my drawing room where I'm fortunate enough to teach uh, at the Eagleton Institute of Politics, when I look at um, 19, 20-year-olds today in their classrooms and the kind of bonds that they're cultivating, and frankly, uh, the way they're reimagining our society, uh, de-emphasizing uh, perhaps a little bit of the you know, material uh, um, aspirations that we all perhaps rightly had, but recognizing that they come at a tremendous cost, a cost towards family life, a cost with respect to their own dignity at times. I think um, when I look at the relationships they're cultivating, I have great hope. And certainly our elected officials uh, are demonstrating the capabilities of this, perhaps not as much as, as we'd like to see uh, across the aisle. Uh, and that goes without saying, but, uh, you know, we look at a, a Reverend Warnock and a, a John Ossoff and um, in, in Georgia, we see some of these instances where people come together uh, across racial lines. And it, it has meaning because in a multiracial democracy, we need demonstrations of how multiracial democracy works. Democracy has typically been historically uh, most successful among homogeneous societies. It's easy to respect and love the law and the rule of law if the people administering it are just like you. It becomes harder when they don't. What and that's why we need demonstrations of friendship, I think. What made you go down the road that led to this book? Oh, there are all kind of academic answers I can give you, and we don't have time for that, so I'll cut to the chase. I think, frankly, you know, this is my fifth book, and you reach a state in, in your life uh, as a scholar where you want to say something that has uh, meaning to you personally. Looking at my own life as someone who's in his middle years, let's, let's call it that, um, you begin to assess where you are as a human being and a legacy that you want to leave behind, but also how you want to live the rest of your life. And I could have uh, been content to strictly write about, oh, you know, ideas that are uh, germane to my subfield of political science, but it, it occurred to me that I need to hit home hard with things that have been moving me. And frankly, personal relationships are where it's at. And frankly, they are the, uh, the, the bedrock of democratic life. You strip that away as we see, and what do we have? We just have raw, naked power. 
And we see that in our personal lives. And I think we see that in politics. The do bonds you, of affection are important. Do you have hope that we're going to get more of that across the aisle friendship back someday, somehow? Because I think that's what people would like to see again. Yeah, argue and then hopefully reach compromise. But then you know what? Even though you're from two different parties, like go out for a beer at the end of the day. That's not happening anymore. No, not not really. And I think um, I, I want to uh, encourage people to not so much look at the possibilities for success, and it may be oxymoronic, but I view hope almost as a kind of dagger to where we need to be. We need to be concerned about the effort. You know, I, I have no guarantees to offer that where we're headed is going to be uh, some Valhalla of uh, democratic life or, or interracial friendship. What matters is the dignity of your soul and the dignity of the soul of the country. And that means regardless to whether or not we believe, even in our hearts, that it's going to work, that we're not going to go down without making every effort we have to make as human beings. Uh, we have to, you know, cross the line, cross the aisle to our own peril. The last line of the book is, uh, we must make ourselves vulnerable, even as vulnerability is our inherited state. We have to be vulnerable to the possibility that it may not work, but it doesn't have to work for us to do our due diligence. And if we all believe that, then I think we really have a chance. Saladin Ambar, new book, Stars and Shadows, The Politics of Interracial Friendships from Jefferson to Obama. That's in depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow.